Okay, welcome back to uh, Political OD. We've got summer upon us. It's, it's wet and raining just outside at the moment, so it doesn't feel like summer. Um, school's out, but it probably doesn't feel uh, like that much different, or? No. Um, well, my boys are at nursery anyway, although I gather school's been out since uh, March anyway, so uh, I'm not sure anybody will notice much difference. No. The difference will be felt if the schools ever go back. And of course, we're also heading to uh, what is likely to be recess uh, in Westminster, but probably also uh, here uh, at the Northern Ireland Assembly. Uh, but before it, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> we might not notice much difference. There's been some attention in the past few days around the bill that's going through, which changes the balance of decision making uh, within uh, the executive. I suppose there are a couple of things about this. First of all, it's remarkable that uh, Richard Bullock, who's largely been fairly quiet since he departed the, the DUP back, I think, about 2017, has come out and basically criticised it quite heavily. Uh, he isn't also much given to criticising the DUP, but seems to believe that this is a bad move and that it, it basically lifts uh, some checks that are within the system um, in respect of departments doing what they like. Um, and it's been a strange intervention that I think the newsletter has certainly picked up, but no one else seems to have been particularly exercised about. Well, the thinking is that the DUP, um, throughout its involvement in devolution, really has taken the view that it's better to have strict controls on what ministers can do just to stop ministers going off on the solo runs as we as we all know know them and particularly Sinn Féin ministers who might have um, ideas very much at, uh, at odds with the rest of the executive and this bill seems to cut against that trend of uh, demanding greater collective responsibility which was also as we know supposed to be part of the new deal that we were moving into after after January. Yeah, and that seems to, it seems to be odd in that respect in terms of timing, because you're know, having talked about greater collective responsibility, having so much emphasis in recent months been about people working better together, all of a sudden here's something that basically allows them to work apart and, and tends towards siloing of departments. Now, I know we don't have a program of government, but just to sort of allow ministers to do as they like at this present time seems to be a bit strange. It just doesn't seem right in timing. It's a bit... The, the timing's very odd, and I suppose this, this issue, um, ostensibly we're asked to believe that it was brought to the fore by um, the planning uh, row over... Uh, I think it was a Buick case, I think it was called. It was about yeah. the waste management um, um, it, it, it was about, uh, yes, the, the kind of chicken litter facility or whatever it, it, it was. Uh, no. no it, was, it was going to be a waste-burning uh, power plant, yes. I think, up in, in uh, Newton Abbey, was it? Yes, and, and, and the, um, the judge sort of intervened to say that um, officials couldn't make this decision and yeah. uh, run past the minister. It does beg the question, why is this happening now? Is there any subtext to it? And... I mean, what's interested me, you say it was Richard Baluk who brought it to before, and that's entirely right, but the only uh, news outlet that's really picked it up with any interest is the newsletter, and it's asking questions about it, Sam McBride again, but this is 
quite an important governance issue. It and, and Stormont is riven with governance problems, so we should all be looking at this rather more closely. Well, okay, I, yeah, and, about it, and there should be a, a greater public conversation about its, its impact. You know, having just had the RHI report, which which was around governance and the ability of civil servants, um, particularly to to manage processes, um, you know, where greater scrutiny should happen between departments and across collectively across uh, ministers uh, as to what's happening. This seems to take away one of those small small checks. Um, well, ministers acting under their own powers and uh, being able to do pretty much what they want in, in their own departments seem to be, seems to be a stunningly bad idea just um, from the, the kind of uh, gut level anyway, but we would need to hear more about the DUP's thinking on this and Arlene Foster's thinking because I mean, she's very supportive of it and says that it's just something to be uh, nodded through and more or less a formality. I, I would like to hear more, more of her argument, more about why, it, why she thinks it's okay. I can understand why if, if uh, you're putting something in place that if, if storm and collapsed, then decisions can be made. Uh, but you can't possibly tell me that they, this is being brought in to enable a better functioning uh, process in the event of collapse. I can't imagine that's, that's uh, to the front of the mind. Oh. And then if they're in government, it makes it more difficult. I, I don't see how these things tie up. If Stormont collapses, the way to make things work is to return powers to Westminster and to have ministers there make the decisions. That's yeah, yeah. There, there, there are a few governance issues I think that are more fundamental. And I've done a lot of work in recent years on optical fibre uh, with uh, city deals and and that sort of thing coming into Northern Ireland. One of the issues that popped up were the Kelvin links, which are the you know the super fast links to to North America. I was looking at the issue of trying to develop the idea of a Causeway 2.0. One of the things I learned in, in doing some marketing research was that the standard for, for super fast broadband in the UK is basically a European standard, which, which isn't much more than at least 24 megabytes per second uh, download speed. It seems remarkably slow when South Korea is already uh, pretty much set for gigabyte Download speeds. I mean, I mean that's that, that's by multitudes uh, faster and and seems much more in tune with the future of digital economies. Um, and I was looking at that and thinking about you know, presenting a paper about Causeway 2.0 about you know, linking that in with enterprise zones and strong marketing to, to rebalance perhaps investment in Northern Ireland into into uh, into the North Coast area. It was a you know it's a great place to live. Uh, it's one of the two big things that any business looks forward in in, in in inward investment, and it's a good place to do business. Well, if you've got you know gigabyte links to North America, that's a good place to set up your data centers or or businesses that that need access to to that level of of digital uh, communication. And I was I was putting it together, and then discovered that one of the difficulties in that, uh, particularly in terms of just data centers is that Northern Ireland hasn't got a secure electricity supply. And that was brought forward in a 2017 Northern Ireland Affairs Committee uh, report uh, from the House of Commons, uh, that there are problems with the interconnector at Moyle, interconnector north-south isn't happening. Um, there's issues around our network. And then 
up popped the issue of, of waste water treatment, uh, which uh, to my surprise, um, well, is that right? Is it a surprise or, or have we heard this over and over again, but we just put it to the back of our minds that, that waste treatment in Northern Ireland is at or near capacity pretty much across the country? Yes, it, it, it's, as far as I know, it's been that way for many, many years. You kind of think back to the water crisis of December 2010 when we had such a, a cold winter and um, we had outages uh, with water and that crisis caused a, a huge discussion at the time about the future of our water service. That crisis, of course, has been forgotten because um, waste, uh, wastewater management isn't a glamorous topic it's it's difficult to deal with um, yeah people shout public sector at it and you can't privatize which is fine but you can mutualize or we we talk a lot about economic development one of the reasons why i was looking at causeway 2.0 uh, was because a lot of economic development is piecemeal and i thought well if you if you put your money into something that has a proven ability to lift the economy um in in terms of uh, infrastructure and Broadband uh, upgrade certainly does that. Uh, you know, it, it it can uplift an economy between half a percent and and three and a half percent. So that's that's a big lift, uh, and there's all sorts of uh, social benefit. Uh, in this region, it would have a huge rural benefit as well, creating greater access in in the rural community to digital services. You're looking at that and being piecemeal, but then you realise that. It's piecemeal because that's all that's possible given the electricity infrastructure and the water infrastructure in Northern Ireland. You can't do something big. You can't deal with a substantive, a, a policy that goes for growth because we haven't got the fundamentals right. We can talk about growing the economy and all the rest of it. And if those building blocks aren't in place, um, you may as well forget about serious growth anyway. We can have little bits and pieces here and there. We can have, you know, some something, some company moving in, uh, creating a thousand jobs because a thousand jobs probably have been lost during the crisis anyway. But if we're going to actually try and push the uh, the region ahead and, and cut serious growth, then it's not sustainable. But I think also you have to leap beyond just the normal. And that's why I was looking at the gigabyte broadband idea because you have to lift yourself to be a competitor in a global economy and, and in, in that sense getting the gigabyte infrastructure allows you to even think about competing uh, with the South Korea's in terms of, of digital development and um, yeah. so uh, that was just it and you know you're, you're talking about property I mean I think the the phrase that Northern Ireland Water has used is you can't you can't build the cranes without digging the drains you know, if you if you don't have the the wastewater infrastructure, you're not going to be able to build the the office infrastructure. But it it it, it kind of takes us back to that whole governance thing that you know I get if if uh, we just have a budget and the individual departments maybe because of this bill can simply do as they like. If that meant that the executive was going to be addressing the big issues, maybe not the sexy issues, but the big issues that the country needs to have addressed. And those are broadly in infrastructure. If we were having the executive put its entire, uh, put a substantial amount of energy into addressing the insecurity of our electricity supply, into 
being realistic about our, our water infrastructure uh, and how we need to get that ready um, for growth. I would get that, but that's not happening. I suppose it goes back to the work being difficult um, and not glamorous, and it doesn't lend itself to this kind of daily diet of press releases of, of ministers doing doing things that they, that they want to be associated with because it's a long and laborious process and it has to have serious work and serious thought behind it. But, but it's just being ignored, on. You, you can add it to a long list of um, kind of yeah. fundamental issues, whether it's uh, reform of the health service, which we've talked extensively about in this podcast, or whether it's reform of the schools and getting the school estate up to up to to scratch, but all, and also not having empty desks, which is something that um, I know was a, an issue that was being looked at at a kind of department level in, in the previous uh, in the previous executive, but nothing the, the follow through wasn't there. Yeah. It's just part of a almost endless series of issues um, that come to the fore from time to time, and we have discussions about them. We have papers. We have all the rest of it, but nothing's nothing's ever done because it's difficult, because it requires hard work, and because it requires reform, and it requires ministers to take responsibility. Well, responsibility and to give it attention. One of the things about the the water electricity uh, infrastructure issue is that I looked at the 2016 program for government, and other than uh, a casual reference to energy and to water, there was nothing about fundamental. Uh, upgrades. I, I mean, it all seems to be very, it, it's almost government light. As I say, you know, I started this looking at a, looking at a, a digital future, but we just seem to be struggling with analog. We seem to be struggling with just the very basics of, of what we're doing. Yeah, the programme for government can only ever be airy stuff and, and not really getting to grips yeah. with, um, with the most important issues in, in, in our society simply because our, our politicians aren't capable of dealing with them and, and also that there's not a consensus around how to tackle any of these things. Uh, let's, let's just swap out to finish off by, by looking perhaps at, at one of those other things that politicians seem to be in a sleep of the wheel and that is in response to the Russia report that has come out from the uh, House of Commons uh, just this past day. Didn't really have much of a bike to it. It didn't seem to be a lot of words are being written, but not much is being said. It, it's fascinating really because this was trailed so heavily because it was because the report didn't come out um, when it was written and it's been knocking about for so long it's almost uh, attracted this kind of mystique to it. And actually it didn't contain anything new really. And we've seen uh although there there's no smoking gun and the implication is that there's no smoking gun because uh, people weren't looking for a smoking gun. It, it's sort of fairly blatantly being deployed for political purposes. We had, uh, it was presented by an SNP and a Labour MP who saw it essentially as a way to, to uh, attack the, the Conservative government. There was so little content in it, they, 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 they weren't able to produce any evidence that there had been any meaningful involvement in the Brexit referendum. There was some evidence that there had been uh, involvement in the Scottish independence referendum. What it did 
show is that there are lots of Russians in London and uh, that some of those Russians are influential and that Russian money isn't always clean and that uh, influential Russians sometimes have links to the Kremlin. But that is not, I don't think, a surprise to any of us. And it's also uh, a more universal problem with uh, in investment and a kind of a, 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 a multicultural city like London and an investment centre like London. The, the talk around Russian interference has largely been about about social media and uh, engagement, much of which I think has just been to muddy waters and to create division, which is which to destabilize governments is is a rather old fashioned approach from the Kremlin, which suggests that it's new technology but old ideas uh, in that respect, just destabilize and create division in society, but nothing that would fundamentally alter the direction of travel of those conversations. Well, it, it sort of conflates a number of things because, yes, it talks about those social media uh, channels and, and things like Sputnik and RT, which are more directly from the Kremlin. But then it also talks about a more underlying Russian influence, and that's where it's discussing oligarchs, people coming in and investing in British society, and then becoming involved in British society, um, you know, so socialising and then trying at some level maybe to influence politics, uh, whatever their uh, whatever their reasons for doing that are. You know, the, uh, the, we had a lot of talk about um, you know donations to the Conservative Party, but again, no kind of evidence that any of this was untoward. I mean, the the thing that I just can't get my head around is if this. Russian influence is so all pervasive in, uh, in in British politics. Then why isn't it having more of an more of an effect? Because um, in the UK, Russia is pretty much seen at the moment as a pariah, and its reputation is as damaged as it has been since the depths of the Cold War. So all of this, all of these operations, all of this influence. What is its effect? What is its purpose? Because it doesn't seem to be actually having any impact, as far as I can see. No. I, I, the other thing that struck me about uh, the conversation around the report is that if you, apart from perhaps the overt presentation of, of efforts to influence like RT and Sputnik and, and, and maybe some of the social media stuff, if we can ever identify what that was rather than just who was trying to do it, um, is that Although the Chinese have been more discreet about their engagement in British society, um, they've still been very present in pretty much the same way as the Russians and perhaps as the Middle Eastern governments have been uh, before. Uh, it doesn't seem to yeah. be that much has changed in terms of uh, people coming into society. I suspect it's the same in Germany and France, in other uh, societies as well where uh, other countries will come in and try and seek to influence directly or indirectly um, well, senior influencers in government or, or society? We're, we're worried about um, Russia and China, and I suppose rightly so in some ways, uh, but this attempts to, to kind of exercise, exercise soft power or whatever aren't exclusive to those kinds of states. There are many, many lobby organizations. You, you've been to cons conservative yes. party conferences like I have. 
um, so many uh, of the of the events at the fringe are attempts by you know the Azerbaijan society, mm -hmm. the, the Israeli society, all of these um, organizations trying to have some kind of influence on on British culture and British investment and trying to uh, exert an influence in that way. So you you can cast it as something um very sinister but it kind of takes a conspiratorial uh cast of mind to do that there there are definitely issues there are uh that there there are issues with cyber attacks and um there are foreign policy issues to do with and, and all kinds of other things but let's not muddy the waters and kind of use this as a, a, as a way of undermine of undermining democratic processes that didn't really have anything to do with Russia. You're looking here at one of the most discreet committees in the House of Commons uh, in terms of their access to information. And it, all I can report is uh, people are, are, are uh, buying tables at dinners. Um, I think that's not much of a... Uh, uh, We're playing uh, tennis with the Prime Minister. Yeah, I, I have to say, I find that all a wee bit underwhelming. I'm not saying it's not unimportant, but it just doesn't seem to provide any great evidence that the Russian state has been particularly successful in its efforts, uh, whatever those efforts are meant to have been. Um, I think it might want to take the credit because it, it makes it sound bigger than, and more successful than it actually obviously has been because it just hasn't delivered anything much for the Russian state. I think it's, it's influence on... British politics has been more or less at the mischief-making end of yeah. things. And the issue of wealthy Russians in London society is something different, and I don't think they should be conflated. Yeah. I think we'll leave it there, Owen. Uh, and I'd just like to end on the note that Liverpool are lifting that Premier League Championship tonight. So uh, just all of our listeners tune into that. That'll be a wonderful occasion. <laughs> I'm sure everybody will join you in, in wishing Liverpool well for the next season. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right, take care, everyone. Thanks.